Welcome to the Language Games Podcast. My name is John Kaus. Today is part three of our Van Til's Apologetics series. We start now with how to define the term apologetics. I define apologetics as setting forth the truth of Christianity. So we're setting forth the truth. So we're giving some kind of argument or reason or demonstration for the truth of Christianity or the Christian worldview. So the Christian worldview is made up of a group of, or a set of propositions that we hold to be true. We are putting arguments forth for the truth of the whole. Now, even if we, let's say, defend the truth of a, of a particular proposition, we're still doing that in the context of defending the entire worldview. Now, naturally, when we defend the truth or set forth the truth of Christianity, we then deny all contradictory worldviews to Christianity. So all non-Christian worldviews are then denied by by our doing this. All right, so what does this look like to give an argument, you know, to to give some kind of demonstration for a, a proposition? Well, in apologetics, it would go something like this. You would pick a proposition that you want to show to be true. So like, no, there are no contradictions in the Bible. Or maybe someone says that Genesis 1 and 2 contradict. So then you say that they don't contradict. Okay, so that's where you want to go. That's your destination. And you're going to do that through the use of logic, of course, but you're going to start then with evidence for it. So, and the evidence then supports, logically, the the, uh, conclusion, which is our destination, our conclusion. That's where we're going. And then we do that via premises. All right, so the premises we start with is their evidence. And if that's true, and if the conclusion follows logically from the premises, then the conclusion is also true. So that's how reasoning happens when we're, when we're doing this, um, trying to support some proposition to be true. Now, in Van Til's apologetic, this is what we're going to be doing. And we're going to get into that in, in great depth. But it's important to step back from this and realize that we shouldn't always get into these situations. So there's going to be two warnings I'm going to, I'm going to give you at the, at the front end that we need to heed and be aware of uh, before we get into this. And the first is to avoid foolishness. Not just foolishness in your own argument, but, but the game of foolishness. A common misunderstanding in apologetics is that everyone deserves a reason. And that is certainly false. No one deserves anything, whether believer or unbeliever. We receive everything by God's grace. Now, God commands Christians to give an answer to every man that asks a reason of the hope that is in us, you know, with meekness and fear. We saw that last week in 1 Peter 3.15. So God, there is some duty uh, upon Christians to give an answer to people that ask for a reason. But notice that not every person who asks for a reason is truly asking for a reason. The unstated assumption in 1 Peter 3.15 is that the person asking the question is willing to reason. There are, however, cases where the person asking the question is not willing to reason, but is only willing to waste your time. C.S. Lewis captures this beautifully in his book Paralandra with the uh, character of the unman. So in Paralandra, we have this, this world where there's Adam and Eve figures are, are here, and you have the unman, or Weston, is trying to corrupt the uh, Eve of, of this world. And Ransom is there to protect Eve from being corrupted. And so you have Ransom interacting here with Weston, or the unman. 
Ransom, it said. Well, said Ransom. Nothing, said the young man. Ransom, it said again. What is it, said Ransom sharply. Nothing, it answered. Ransom, this time he made no reply. Another minute, and it, and it uttered his name again. And then, like a minute gun, Ransom, 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 perhaps a hundred times. What the hell do you want? <laughs> he roared at last. Nothing, said the voice. Next time, he determined not to answer. But when he, it had called on him about a thousand times, he found himself answering whether he would or not, and nothing came the reply. If the attack had been of some more violent kind, it might have been easier to resist. What chilled and almost cowed him was the union of malice with something nearly childish. For temptation, for blasphemy, for a whole battery of horrors, he was in some sort prepared. But hardly for this petty, indefatigable nagging as of a nasty little boy at a preparatory school. Then all at once it was night. Ransom, 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 went on the voice. And suddenly it crossed his mind that though he would sometime require sleep, the unman might not. When I used to engage in apologetics in college, I would reason with anyone who expressed interest. Many times, though, the conversation felt like a waste of time because the, the opponent wasn't really listening to what I said. He would just move on to another objection. It was a trap. If I ended the conversation, I thought I had lost because there was some objection that he was going to give that I did not answer. So I never ended the conversation. I just sat there waiting for whatever nonsense came out of his mouth next and then had to answer it. And I just sat there dependent on either him getting uh, bored, tired, or maybe distracted by some other obligation. Whatever the case, I had to sit there. He could deny truth. He could reject the use of logic. I was bound to engage with this person, or so I thought, but I was wrong. I let the conversation go off the rails because I did not understand what was happening. We were not engaging in apologetics. He was trying to lure me into a game of nonsense, and I dove head first. But apologetics assumes that we are not playing the nonsense game. The apologetic game is a game of reason. We do not play the unmanned game. It is on the apologist, though, to keep the unmanned at bay. The unmanned needs to enter the game of apologetics. But to do that, he needs to stop being the unmanned. The Bible talks much about this. Proverbs 14.7, Go from the presence of a foolish man, when thou perceivest not in him the lips of knowledge. Proverbs 17.12, Let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. Speak not in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of thy words. Proverbs 23.9. Proverbs 29.9, If a wise man contendeth with a foolish man, whether he rage or laugh, there is no rest. 2 Timothy 2.16, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. 2 Timothy 2.23, But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. So apologists should not engage with the unmanned. That's the first warning. The second warning is to beware of the covert fideism living in certain quote-unquote Vantillian circles. What is fideism? 
that you maybe ask you, what is fideism? Well, fideism, I'll define it as believing one's faith commitments, this is the ones that you hold, to be blind and that there is no evidence to support such commitments. So these faith commitments that are yours, you would believe there's no real evidence to support them. You would then be a fideist. Now you say, but surely no person claiming to be Evangelian would agree with fideism. And that's correct. They would, they would unlikely admit this openly. I'm not even sure they're entirely aware this is going on. But their actions are, in practice, fideistic. Wittgenstein used to say that if you want to know what someone believes, just watch how he acts. Just watch him. These, uh, I wouldn't even say they're Vantillians because they, they actually, they either outright reject the transcendental argument or they just avoid it altogether, which means they just avoid the argument altogether. And they want to just sit back and talk about Van, Van Til's theology and they want to emphasize that first before going into the argument. The problem is they never go into the argument. Well, Van Til's work, if you read his books, from 1932 with the Survey of Christian Epistemology all the way into the 1970s. The transcendental argument, whether it's named, whether it has that name or not, that argument is fundamental to everything Van Til writes. Even his, his work on uh, systematic theology is filled with uh, that apologetic, with that argument. So if you are in practice against the argument, against his transcendental argument, don't think it's useful, don't think you need to use it, or you don't even want to get into it, are you really a Vantillian? I don't think so. I don't think you can be, it's what distinguishes Van Til mostly from other people, from other theologians of his time and people previous to him, is, is the argument. That's what's distinct about being a Vantillian. So, but we need to be careful here, though, because some people want to get into Van Til's theology, which is wonderful. I think Van Til's theology is great. But they do that to such a point to, uh, where they just avoid the argument altogether. And at that point, if you're not ever giving arguments, you're not ever doing apologetics, which then in practice, you're just a fideist. Okay? You don't actually believe there are arguments uh, to give another person. Now, you may say, well, they would appeal, of course, to the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit as evidence for their own faith. And yeah, they probably would do that. So maybe we'll call them fideism light. Okay, they're believing one's faith commitments to be blind and that there is no evidence to give an unbeliever to support such commitments. So, so they are fideism light. But that is not Van Til. That is the opposite of what Van Til taught. This is not Van Tilian. So whether these, these professors or not realize what's going on, they are in practice not being Van Tilians. So be aware of that. Van Til is about giving arguments for the faith, and they are philosophical. He is not against philosophy. In fact, we're going to see, as I quote him later on, that he would say Christian apologetics is necessarily philosophical. You have to be philosophical to do Van Til's argument on any level. So you cannot reject philosophy and be a Van Tilian and practice his argument. So be aware of that. All right, with those two warnings out of the way, Next week, we'll dive into the two kinds of questions that control all apologetical situations. For more content like this, you can find us on x at underscore language games. See you next time.